Well, good morning. I think we'd all agree that a promise is only as good as the one who makes it, right? So we learned this at a young age. When you're a kid and you've got a, a big secret that you really want to share, like with your best friend, maybe you're going to tell this best friend about that girl that you like, the one you think's kind of cute. And you go to your best friend, you say, can you keep this a secret? And he says, I promise. <laughs> and you know by that hungry look in his eye that he's not gonna, or you should have known, but you didn't. <laughs> and you say, well, you pinky promise. And he says, yes, I'll pinky promise. And you do this to bind him, to make it official, you pinky promise. And then you tell him, you tell him the name of the girl. And you're excited and he's excited and you've just shared the biggest secret a third grader could ever have. <laughs> and then you get to school the next day and everybody knows. And your friends are teasing you and that girl won't even look at you. She's too embarrassed. And it's like your little third grade soul has just been laid bare to the world. And you're like, what is going on here? Have you ever been there before? I don't know anything about that. I've never been there before. I've just I've heard. I've heard. If you've been there before or a place like it, you've probably found a new best friend pretty quick, huh? Yeah. I mean, if not even the pinky promise can bind your friend to his word, then you can't trust him with anything, can you? We know this as adults, too. For some people, when they give you their word, you can count on it. You can take it to the bank, as we like to say. Other people, you better get it in writing can't trust them. You don't know. Sometimes we learn these lessons the hard way, but we do learn them and it doesn't take us very long to figure out who we can and who we can't trust because we know that a promise is only as good as the one who makes it. It's a matter of trust. It's a matter of character. It's a matter of integrity. That's why some of the most painful words I ever hear are, but dad, you promised. Ah. Now, even though they're whining, it still hurts. But dad, you promised. It hurts because I said I would do something with them and then I fail to follow through. And then they say, dad, you promised. And I know that I'm damaging my integrity in their eyes. And I don't lose too much sleep over that because it's usually about like watching a TV show or something <laughs> it's with my kids. But it, 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 I do try to make, to avoid making promises that I can't keep because it matters, because a promise is only as good as the one who makes it. And that's the essence of our passage today. We, people, we break our promises all the time, but there is one, there is one who never has and he never will. So go ahead and turn your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3 verses 15 through 22 will be our passage today. So if you recall from our previous sermons in the series in Galatians, Paul's been making this case that a right standing with God, like being forgiven of your sins, being justified before him, having Christ's righteousness imputed to you, all of that is given to you by God as a gift of his grace through faith. It comes to you through faith in his son, Jesus Christ. Salvation, as we call that, is not earned by works. It's a gift. 
It's a gift of grace through faith. That's the the case that Paul has been making in his letter to the Galatians. In In our passage today, Paul's going to ground that case on the promise of God, on the promise of God. You see, God made a promise and that's very good news for us because God keeps his promises. The issue in the Galatian church that Paul was addressing is that some people had come into the church and they were, they were teaching in that church that you had to follow the Old Testament law in order to be a true Christian. And the, the believers in that church, the people in that church, they were getting confused about this. They were getting mixed up in this. You see, they wanted to do the right thing before God, but they were forgetting where they stood with God by grace through faith. So that's what Paul was addressing then. And it's, it's a good word for us today in this passage, because even today, even today outside of the church, there are people all over the world, people in our community, people maybe even sitting here right now that are still trying to earn their salvation, still believing that, that that they, they have to earn this right standing by what they do or don't do. They may, they may believe in God. They may even believe in Jesus up here. But they don't believe in grace. They don't understand grace right here where it counts. So they think they've got to do good things to earn their salvation and they're missing it. They're missing it. And it's sad. It's a tragedy. But even for us, church, even for us who believe in Jesus, as the Galatian church did, I know from my personal experience, and I know from ministering among and being among all of you that it's your experience as well, that it's so easy for us to go into this mindset that God is either pleased with us or displeased with us based on what we do or do not do. I mean, that is where my mind goes, like quickly, when I am not constantly reminding myself of the truth of the gospel. So this passage that we're going to consider today is a really good word for us today. We're going to consider it in two parts. So first, we're going to look at verses 15 through 18, and we're going to see in 15 through 18 that God made a promise and that the law, which came later, did not cancel the promise. And then in the second part, verses 19 through 22, we're gonna see that not only did the law not cancel the promise, but it actually served the promise by preparing God's people to receive Christ. That's what we'll see in the two parts of our passage. Let's begin by reading verses 15 through 18 together, Galatians chapter three. Paul writes, To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring who is Christ. For this is what I mean. These are always good words in scripture for this is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant that's been previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance 
comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. All right, so by way of background here to help us understand this, God made certain promises to Abraham clear back in Genesis chapter 12. Clear at the beginning of our Bible, Genesis chapter 12, he made these promises to Abraham. And then a little bit later in Genesis 15 and 17, he confirmed those promises by entering into a covenant with Abraham. So we're talking covenant language here. So we have to really understand what a covenant is. A covenant is a solemn or sincere or very serious agreement between two parties. So think marriage, for example. Think of a marriage covenant. Marriage is a covenant. Two people enter into a relationship for life that's solemnized, that's the legal word for it, or made solemn by this exchanging of vows, which are really just promises. You're exchanging promises to each other. And we know this, for I promise to have and to hold you from this day forward for better or worse, for richer or poorer in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish till death do us part." Those are promises. Those are solemn promises. That is a covenant. It's a covenant. And Paul's saying that God, the Bible says, that God made a covenant with Abraham based on promises. So there's uh, different setting forths of those promises at different parts of Genesis, but we can basically summarize them as land, people, and that the nations would be blessed through Abraham. So God promised that Abraham would have land. God promised that Abraham would have this multitude of offspring or people. And he promised that the nations would be blessed through him. Those are promises he made to Abraham back in Genesis and in our passage, or not our passage, but in Galatians chapter three, just a few verses before our passage, Paul pointed out up in verses eight and nine, that that promise of blessing to the nations, that promise of blessing to the nations, it was really referring to salvation by faith in Jesus Christ. Salvation by faith in Jesus Christ from pe- for people from all over the world, from any nation. And so in our passage today, Paul's saying that the law, which came 430 years later, given to Moses, does not cancel those great and glorious promises. It does not cancel the covenant that God already made. And to make his point right away in verse 15 in our passage, Paul gives a human example of a man-made covenant that can't be annulled or can't be added to once it's ratified. That Greek word for covenant he uses, it's, it's, it's uh, the same word for someone's last will and testament. So we have these today, right? We can go uh, get, a, get a will drafted for us or do it on our own through legal Zoom if we want to. And, and we, we say in our will who we want to leave our property to. Okay, so Paul's drawing us to that kind of example when he uses this word here in the Greek. And that's helpful for us because we know that when someone dies, that will becomes final. It's the final word. So before they die, they can change that will all they want. If, if uh, Susie does something to upset her mother, well, her mom can just change her will and leave the family china to Sally. 
Mom can do that as often as she wants until, of course, she passes. Then it's the final word. Then all that's left is for the executor to carry out the terms of the will. Paul is saying that if even humans, if even humans have covenants that they don't change, that they don't add to, that become final, then surely God, surely God, when he enters into a covenant, he means it. He means it. He's giving his word and he's going to follow through. And it doesn't matter if he enters into another covenant 430 years later like he did with Moses because the later covenant does not undo the previous covenant with Abraham because God's promises stand. God's promises stand. That's a really good thing, amen? Amen. It's a good thing because God's a faithful covenant partner when we are not. We are not. You see, in all these covenants, and there's several in the Bible, there's one with Abraham, and there's one with Moses, and there's one later with David, but in all these covenants, God makes these promises, and there's this tension in them between God's faithfulness to carry out, to fulfill, to follow through with his promises, and there's a tension there between that and the unfaithfulness of his human covenant partner to hold up our end of the deal. So we just saw last week how, when we were talking about the law with Moses, we saw how part of that law, the Mosaic covenant promised blessings to those who obeyed the law and it promised curses to those who disobeyed the law. And we know that God's people disobeyed the law. So they were under that covenant curse. That's why Jesus had to become that curse for us. But even in God's covenant with Abraham, he, he demands a faithful covenant partner. In Genesis 17, 1, God tells Abraham, he says, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. He called upon Abraham to be blameless before him. Was Abraham blameless? No, Abraham was not blameless. Abraham had just as much sin as you or I do. So earlier in Abraham's story, he had already doubted God's promises of offspring. See, his first wife, Sarah, she wasn't having any kids for him. And, and, and because he doubted God's ability to follow through, with the promise, he actually took a second wife. He took Sarah's servant as his second wife to have kids with her. It's not blameless. Later in Abraham's story, for the second time in his story, when he definitely should have known better, he was traveling through a foreign land and he came across a king, King Abimelech. And in order to save his own skin, so he thought, because he was doubting God's promises for him, he offered up his wife, Sarah, to the king. He pretended that his wife, Sarah, was actually his sister. So that the king would take her to be his wife and in that way would be pleased with Abraham. That's just sick. I mean, that's messed up. 
That is not blameless, folks. Abraham was not this faithful covenant partner. He, he's sinful like us. God would have had every right not to fulfill his covenant obligations with Abraham. He would have every right not to fulfill his covenant obligations to us because we don't hold up our end of the bargain. Think back to creation. We're, we're all supposed to be image bearers of God. We're created in his image. We're supposed to bear it to the world. We're supposed to worship him exclusively. We're supposed to rule over this creation as like servant kings under God and ruling for him and for him alone. And we don't. We don't. We give our hearts over to other things other than him constantly. We're faithless covenant partners. We're adulterous spouses. We don't hold up our end of the bargain. You can't trust us with anything. Yeah, even when we pinky promise. (laughs) Can't trust us. But God. And those are two beautiful words in scripture, amen? But God. God is so Faithful. God is so faithful to uphold his end of the covenant promises that he actually provides in himself and for himself the faithful covenant partner. Let's look carefully at verse 16. Verse 16 says, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Folks, don't let Paul's questionable grammar uh, distract you from the point he's trying to make. Paul knows, by the way, that offspring can have a plural meaning, uh, even though it's in the singular form. What he's actually doing is he's taken this this Jewish uh, interpretation technique that was common then, where they they would look at the tiniest details of a text and draw these conclusions out of it. And so he's using this Jewish technique against the Judaizers that he's arguing against to make his point, and, and don't miss this point, this is a big point, that when scripture says that God made promises to Abraham and to his offspring, in its fullest sense, the offspring is not just referring to his biological offspring, and it's not just referring to all of his spiritual offspring, it's referring to one offspring in particular, the capital O offspring, the son of God, Jesus Christ. That means, that means that God is making these promises to and entering into this covenant with his very own son. And because Jesus is God, he's able to be the faithful covenant partner that we're not. And because he's a man, he's able to stand in for us in this covenant relationship and represent us and be the faithful covenant partner on our behalf. It's mind-blowing. Jesus earned the inheritance that Paul's talking about here with his righteous life. 
in his obedient death. Jesus deserves to receive the promises of God in a way that we never could. But the beautiful thing for us is that this heavenly eternal inheritance that Jesus earned, that is rightfully his, it's ours too. By grace, through faith in Jesus. And we don't earn it under the law. We receive it as a promise from God. And we know from 2 Corinthians 1.20 that in Christ, all the promises of God are yes. In Christ, all the promises of God are yes. And we get the benefit of all of that through faith. Ah. If you could earn the inheritance, if you could earn it, it wouldn't be a promise. It wouldn't be grace. So brothers and sisters, stop laboring under the law to earn a right standing with God. That's like earning an inheritance that's already yours. The will has been signed. It's been guaranteed or proven as final through the death and resurrection of the Son. The inheritance is ours. And we receive it by faith. We are co-heirs with Christ. He's the true heir. We're co-heirs with him and in him. So don't live your life trying to earn this gift. You can't. You can't. We can't because we're sinners. Because we've already failed. Because we're faithless covenant partners. Time and time again, our hearts fall for something else than the one true God who loves us and saved us through his son. But God's promises stand. God's promises stand. He's faithful. Jesus is the faithful covenant partner on our behalf. And so let's rest in him. Let's rest in God's mercy. Let's rest in Christ's finished work on the cross for us. Let's rest in God's faithfulness and let's receive the promise of a right standing with him by grace through faith. That's our call. That is the first part of our passage. It was good, huh? Yeah, it's good. <laughs> we got a second half. That's good too, because all of God's word is good. So in the first part of our passage, we saw that the law that came later did not render the promises void. And in the second half of our passage, Paul's gonna turn to this question of why then the law? So if, if God didn't give his people the law so that they could earn their salvation by obeying it, why did he give it to them? That's where Paul turns next. So let's read that starting in verse 19. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin 
so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. All right, one thing I want to do right away is address this super confusing part in, verses, in verse 20 and at the end of verse 19 where it talks about angels and the intermediary. So this might have been abundantly clear to the Galatians 2,000 years ago. But then I remember Peter, the apostle Peter writing that some things that Paul writes are hard to understand. So I think maybe the Galatians were just scratching their heads right along with us. I don't know, they may have been. But my, my best shot at this, putting it together is that Paul is pointing to the superiority of the promise over the law. Because you see, the law came with and through angels. You can see that in Deuteronomy 33, Psalm 68, Acts 7, Hebrews 2. Angels were present and involved in the giving of the law. And the law came to and through Moses as an intermediary or a go-between with the people. But Paul's saying that the promise, the promise came directly from God to Abraham. And not only to Abraham, but to his capital O offspring, Jesus. So in other words, I think what Paul's saying here is promise is greater than, remember that sign from school, greater than? I'm doing it backwards for you. I think it's right. Promise is greater than law. I think that's what he's saying in verse 20 and at the end of 19. But his main point, his main point for this second half of the passage is that the law was given not so that we could earn our salvation by obeying it, but so that it would make us even more aware of our sin, more aware of our unrighteousness, more aware of our helplessness to save ourselves, more aware of our desperate need for God to save us by his mercy and his grace. So verse 19 says that the law was added because of transgressions. Now I have to admit that upon first reading, my first thought when I see that the law was added because of transgressions, I think, well, we were transgressing in all these ways as God's people. And so then he gave the law so that we'd knock it off. You know, like uh, the laws today have that deterrent effect against crime or they're supposed to. I'm driving down the road and I come to a construction zone and I see that sign that tells me how huge the fines are for speeding in that construction zone and how much jail time I'm going to serve for hitting somebody in that construction zone. I slow down. I slow down. That deters me from sinning in that way. That's kind of what I first thought of when I see that the law was added because of transgression. And that is a purpose of laws, but I don't think that's what Paul has in mind here. I don't think it is. You see, when Paul says that the law was added because of transgressions, I think what he's really saying is that the law was added so that we would become more aware of our transgressions, so that we, could act, we would actually, and this is kind of not intuitive, but that our transgressions would actually be increased. We would actually sin more because all these laws were in place. We're just breaking them all the time. So he talks about this in Romans 7. In Romans 7, Paul says, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. It's the 10th commandment. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, 
produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Paul's saying that if it weren't for the 10th commandment, he wouldn't have known that coveting his neighbor's house or his neighbor's wife or his neighbor's things is a sin. And more than that, he's actually saying that the commandment made it worse. That like the very fact of knowing that it was against the law made him want to do it all the more. And we think that's twisted. That's messed up. Paul's a messed up guy. But I think if we think a little bit, we'd say, yeah, that sounds about right. Like it's actually kind of fun to sin at times for a time, right? I mean, we kind of want to. I remember a teacher telling me one time that the surest way to get a teenager to read a book is to ban it. My teenagers, they ain't reading no books. You ban the book, they're going to read it. Guaranteed. Because it's fun. It's fun to break the rules. Even my youngest child, sweet little Louise. She's one and a half. She's so cute and sweet. Just the other night, she was in the tub. And I said, Louise, stay in the tub. I got to help your brother James brush his teeth. That was really dumb on my part. Because she loves the tub. She had no desire to get out of the tub until I told her not to. And then it was a game. Then her eyes lit up. And it's like, oh. And then she starts going towards the edge. And she puts her hand up here looking at me. And then she puts that knee up there. What's he going to do? She's so cute. I didn't do anything. but. (laughs) So these are lighthearted examples. I'm keeping it light here for us. But it's, it's really revealing of the terrible condition of our human hearts. Like, it's in our very nature to not only sin, but to want to sin and to like it. And that is messed up. That is. So I get what Paul's saying. The law shows us our sin and sin uses the law to make us want to sin all the more. The law was added because of transgressions to drive it home to us how desperately sick we are. And so the law is not contrary to the promise. It's not like the law is some other way to be saved. It's not like the law is some other way to receive life. It's not contrary to the promise. It actually serves the promise because the promise is that we would be justified by faith in Christ and the law drives us to Christ. The Jews in Paul's day and we today, we might think of the law as like this castle wall protecting us, keeping out all all the sick people, keeping out all the evil people, the bad people. And we're in here behind the walls of the law, holy and right and good. Well, you know what? What what Paul's saying in verse 22 at the end of our passage, he's saying that that castle wall, it's really a prison wall. We're the inmates. We're the sick ones. 
And the law is keeping us bound. The law is keeping us chained to our sin and to the death that results from our sin until, until we're set free by Jesus. Back in Romans 7, when Paul was lamenting about that sin in him and the law stirring up more sin, he's like at the end of himself and he cries out, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's who delivers. That's who breaks into prison and gets us out of there. Jesus Christ, our Lord. When you feel those prison walls closing in, when you feel the weight of your sin and it is just too much to bear, that is when God can come in. When you are at the end of yourself and you have no answers, you have no answers, that is the moment when Jesus comes in to save. James 4, 6 says, God opposes the proud, the people that have the answers, the people that think they're okay, the people that think they've been good enough, they're a decent guy. I'm not bad like all of them or not as bad as all of them. God opposes the proud. He gives grace. He gives grace to the humble. James goes on to say, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy be turned to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. You see, the Lord in his grace and in his mercy, he brings us to our knees. He brings us to our knees so that we'll know our need of him and call out for him. And it's only then that he'll lift us up and embrace us like a father embraces a son or a daughter. This is God's call for all of us here today to humble ourselves before the Lord and be exalted in him. This is for the unbeliever, of course. This is for the believer too. We're all called to repentance and faith. You know, you see, for the very first time, the very first time that God does this work in your heart, and it's God that does this work in your heart, the very first time he does and he causes you to mourn over your sin and to cry out for him, to him for salvation and to cast yourself upon him for mercy, to trust in Christ and his atoning sacrifice for you and for your sins on the cross the very first time that you do that and you cry out to him 
and you receive the promise. The very first time you are forgiven and you are justified and the very spirit of God does come to live in you to guarantee your inheritance, to seal it, to lock it up. And not only that, but to give you the power to live in a way that is free from the sin and the death that once bound you. That's true for you the very first time that you humble yourself before the Lord and call out to him and give yourself to him. And so that's your call today if you have not had that very first time. But church, brothers and sisters, if you are brothers and sisters, then you have done that. And you're thinking, I did that years ago. I repented, I believed years ago. But church, this is our call too. You see, we enter into that relationship with God the first time. We humble ourselves before him and cry out for him and he comes and lives with us. But then we're called to a lifestyle of repentance and faith. It's like an everyday deal. I mean, that's why I said my, my heart always goes towards works-based righteousness, toward God doesn't like me when I'm sinning or when I'm not being good enough. It's an everyday deal that I need to remind myself of the truths of the gospel, that I need to repent of the sins that I'm still committing because sin still lives in me. It's in my nature. And so the spirit who's also in me points it out to me and I say, thank you, spirit. And then I'm called to turn from that and to remember and to know and to thank God that I am forgiven, that I am justified, that the Spirit does live in me and in the power of the Spirit, I don't have to give myself over to that sin anymore. I can kill it and be free of it in the power of the Spirit who lives in me. And that's our call, church. That's your life in Christ. And so believers, brothers and sisters, Answer the call today to humble yourselves before the Lord and be exalted in him. None of this is earned. This great and glorious salvation that the the scripture proclaims that we're celebrating today, it's not earned, it's given. And it's not by works, it's by faith. And it's not by the law, it's by the promise and we receive the promise by faith in Jesus. God promised that the offspring of Abraham, Jesus Christ, the son of God, through him, all the nations, all the nations, that's you and that's me and that's people everywhere all over the world who humble themselves before him and cry out to him, God promised that through Christ, all the nations shall be blessed. And God keeps his promises. Are you thankful that God keeps his promises? Amen? Amen. Let's pray.